This is an exciting episode because it is the 100th episode of the podcast. When I started this podcast, I didn't expect to get to 100 episodes because I didn't even want to do the podcast in the first place. It started with a step of obedience. I felt like God was inviting me to step into public transparency and to create a space to process who God is and what he's up to. And so I took steps of obedience one by one until here we are, the 100th episode. And it's been a wild ride particularly this healing season that we're in. And while I had a lot of ideas of what the 100th episode would look like, there is one idea that has been with me for years, and that's who would be the guest. And our guest today is incredibly special for this podcast, but also in my life in general. His name is Rob Prestowitz, and he's the executive director of Urban Promise Wilmington. And if you've been listening to this podcast long enough, you already know his name and why he had to be the 100th episode guest. Because it was Rob who asked the question, that's the basis of this whole podcast, where did you see God? That moment way back in 2006 shaped so much of my life. And so I knew I wanted to have him on. And when I realized it would be in the midst of this healing season, I didn't know what the conversation would be until suddenly it hit me. Rob has spent 25 years serving in Wilmington, Delaware. And when I say serving, I mean authentically loving his neighbors and authentically inviting others to do the same. And the way that Urban Promise Wilmington loves their neighbors in Wilmington transformed my life and set the trajectory of where I am today. So I'm deeply grateful to Rob. I'm deeply grateful to Urban Promise Wilmington. And I'm deeply grateful for this conversation about what healing of a community does or does not look like. You're listening to episode 100 of the Where Did You See God podcast. Father God, I just want to thank you that you are God and you are good. And I just thank you for this opportunity for Rob and I connect. And I just thank you for the long, long relationship we've had and just the ways that you've connected us in the past and the fact that you've worked it out for us to connect tonight. And I just really believe that you want to do something through this conversation. And so to that end, we release it to you. Any thoughts or ideas that we're bringing into it, we just release all that to you. We invite you to take the conversation wherever you want it to go. And above all, we just pray that you are honored and glorified. So we thank you for this time. Thank you in advance for how you're going to work. I just pray in his holy and precious name. Amen. All right, so Rob, I am very, very excited to talk to you for a lot of reasons. One, because you are just one of those people that have been meaningful in my life. So anytime I get a chance to talk to you is great. Two, because this is the 100th episode that I'm recording for the podcast. And you are the person that I've wanted for that episode for a long time, which I'll talk about in a moment. But three, I feel like in this season I'm on focused on healing, there's a very specific topic that came to my mind when I thought of you that I just feel like is going to lead to a robust conversation. But before we jump into any of that, one thing that I do with all the guests is I want to give them a chance to briefly, but in a fun way, share who they are. And I say fun because I've made it an improv game for myself where I give myself no advance notice and I come up with a random prompt. And so this is the random prompt that I came up with for you. So let's say in your next season in life, you're about to venture on into something and you want to invite people to come alongside you. In your lifetime, you have written a lot of support letters, a lot of update letters. And so let's say you're crafting a very short letter that you're going to send out to a whole bunch of people just to introduce yourself, to say who you are, and to encourage them to walk with you on this next leg of your journey. I've just gotten it in the mail. I open it up. There's a smiling picture of you. 
and there's a little blurb about who you are. What does that blurb say about Rob Prestowitz? I'm a sinner saved by the blood of Jesus. I'm really grateful for his grace. And I don't know if I know anybody who's experienced his grace more than I have. And I find joy in that. I was praying this morning about uh, restore the joy of my salvation in Psalm 51. And to have that renewed every day or every season is a powerful and life-giving way to take the next step. So I would just start like that, I think. I love it. You know, people who have listened hopefully know your name by now because I have probably mentioned you more than any other person I mentioned because you are the source of the title of this podcast, Where Did You See God? Because I constantly tell the story of back in probably 2006, us sitting at a staff meeting, and one day you looked over at us and you're like, all right, I'm going to ask a question and we're going to go around the table. I want you to tell me, where did you see God today? And I was convicted because I could not think of an answer. And I'm sitting here thinking, I'm working for a ministry. I went to a Christian university. I've been a Christian all my life. Rob has just asked what should have been a softball question, and I have nothing. And that conviction led me to realize I am retroactively looking for God. I am waiting for someone to prompt me in order for me to look for God. How might my life be different if I proactively look for God? And so that led to a different way of engaging with God and a different way of living, eventually led to a podcast <laughs> where I explore this idea in this mentality. So first, this is one of the big reasons why I'm excited to have you on as the 100th guest, because that one question was one of those formative moments in my life. And this is the funny part about you. I came up with some answer because I'm clever. I could come up with something and you didn't settle for our <laughs> easy answers. So I said, one of the kids, he started doing his homework and you're like, but why? Why did you see God in that? And so I know you from my time at Urban Promise. Tell me a little bit about Urban Promise Wilmington. The vision of Urban Promise is to be a community in Christ of servant leadership and transformation, seeking a full life for all involved in the neighborhoods of our city. It's just a little bit more than that. And that is exactly who we are. It sounds like such routine set of words, but it is so abundantly full. I had an interesting day today. As you know, I think in any ministry, every day is an interesting day. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I had a little note from a fifth grader. It's funny, I was speaking to her in a line this week and I didn't know her name and then I connected it and then I happened to get this note uh, which had been sent in the mail prior to me talking to her, which is one of those God things. And I have not talked to this girl 10 words in six years probably to see her say goodbye to And what struck me when she was standing in line is how much joy she had. And oddly enough, she was talking about dreams that she was having and they were rather alarming dreams in a routine way, but she just shared it so innocently and transparently. And I felt so blessed by her invitation to allow me to have a conversation with her when we really don't know each other. In parallel, the very moments that this is happening, this is somewhere in, a, you know, in the bowels of the post office and arrives a day or two later in my mailbox. And that life experience of living life together, experiencing God together, understanding what incarnated resurrection power is together in all the elements that come together in time and space at Urban Promise. That's who we are and what brings life and what brings the challenge. Mm -hmm. So building community in Christ is about everybody being an element of that body. And I think that's been sort of a central feature for us. I, I think to myself a lot as I'm you know, preparing to, to transition leadership, 
you do get to reflect. And a striking feature is the general weakness of my leadership and yet the abundant results of 25 years of ministry that I'd enjoy. And I think it's people like you, Paul, and hundreds of others, really thousands, who have served and participated and shared and sacrificed and suffered and struggled and screwed up. But doing it all in Jesus' name in an authentic way, sustainably, it's just beautiful. And doing that every day, you know, new tomorrow with new mercies tomorrow, persevering. And then the, the cool thing is you look back and there's so many elements of having to persevere in order for those sacrifices to be authentic and to be understood. And really, in many ways, to walk with Jesus, to model, to be his disciple and to walk in those steps as little as you can. There's a great beauty and a transcendent experience of truth when you come out the other side. You know, like that young lady and her sharing her heart with me and me being blessed by it is so innocent and so profound. And that kind of integrated moment millions of times over 25 years, that's the life in Christ. Yeah. You know, a lot of what I do now is shaped by my time at Urban Promise. And I feel like there are so many reasons for that. Some of them you named, right? The authenticity that I experienced there was a big part of it. That everybody that I was working alongside was not there because they were trying to make money, <laughs> was not there because they were trying to make a name for themselves. They were there because they authentically wanted to love God and love others. And there was a lot of sacrifice that went into being in that space and serving in those ways. You also mentioned the relational element. That's something else that has really stood out to me. There were authentic relationships. There are so many stories out of Urban Promise that aren't stories of look at what we accomplished, but so many of the stories are, this is a relationship I had with someone. This is how God worked through that. And this is how God did abundantly more. And it all started at this core relationship. You know, you mentioned something, you talked about perseverance, and I can't remember the way you worded it, but you basically said that perseverance is what can bring about real authenticity. Because a lot of times we can go into something with authenticity, but then when things get hard, that really presses in on how authentic we are or what is our authenticity based on. And Urban Promise has been going for 25 years and has gone through many hard seasons, many challenges, many storms. But I remember feeling the sense at the last banquet that y'all had online of just seeing that who Urban Promise is now, there's so much that's still reflective of what I remember seeing and experiencing. So I love that idea, that idea that perseverance really drives home authenticity, really reveals authenticity. You know, when I thought about having this conversation with you, when I thought about this idea of how to connect having you with the idea of healing, the idea that really was loud in my mind. It's the idea of the healing of a community. And in your 25 years, you have seen a lot of brokenness and a lot of transformation. You've seen a lot of wounds and you've seen a lot of healing. But I'm curious, when you hear that phrase, the healing of a community, what that evokes in you? I think the temptation to be proud or deceived that you're, you're doing something to heal a community. Mm. I think that it's about being obedient to God, loving each other. Healing is a, is a collateral blessing. And to think you're coming in to heal a community or to heal an individual, it just seems obnoxious or arrogant to me. You know, it's a matter of the attitude of heart and you can't judge someone's heart. But, and, and you know, the other thing is a sense of condescension in that, really. There may be obvious, ostensive attributes of pain or suffering or woundedness or deprivation or something like that. But if you had a, a reveal of my heart on a video screen, would it look any different? So I think it's just 
helpful to just walk life together and not be stupid or blind or pretend that things aren't bad in certain situations. But I don't get the sense that there's any superior or inferior position in walking alongside each other like that. You know, I mean, issues like education. If you're not well-educated, you're going to suffer. And when I see people who are not well-educated, it's been inflicted on them in many ways. And everybody has personal responsibility, but it makes you suffer. You agree for that. It troubles you. It dissatisfies you. So it does motivate you to say, how can you do something about that? And you could describe that as healing in some respect. But I also think that the absence of caring about that or the indifference to it or the obfuscation that you can do anything about it, how grievous is that before God? Is that different than the individual who may manifest obvious symptoms of woundedness? So anyway, I think we're all in desperate need of Jesus and we all are in desperate need to manifest that love every day. And I think you want to be deliberate and strategic about saying, hey, there's things we can do. Let's suck it up and do something about that and hold ourselves accountable to that. But you don't achieve progress through your effort. You know, you achieve it through your faithfulness and God's grace. And you go back to relationships and, you know, like what was beautiful in a way in that little girl's conversation with me was that she invited me into relationship with her. That was an act of grace. And oddly, you know, you get this message afterwards that reminds you of a bigger God and a, and a bigger network of relationships that he's working in. One of the great things in my experience is I looked over 25 years like, oh, my gosh, so much abundance in my life given to me by all of these children and families and community members, pretty much as acts of grace. They have lots of reasons not to share that or freely give that. The beauty of that new mercy every day is very compelling. You know, but back to healing, you know, I have a funeral to go to this weekend for a young person, 19-year-old. And it's been a long and difficult and painful journey. And so I think his release from this life feels like a blessing. And his family, his immediate family, his extended family, you know, this long journey of healing and you can't accelerate it. So all you can do is go there, be alongside, tell them you love them, listen to them. And you're not going to fix it. You're not going to heal it out of, you know, some sort of words or things that you do. But the obedience and the love to show up and be present. I mean, metaphorically, I just think that's an awful big part of healing in any context. Yeah. I was so happy when you started to answer. And I also laughed in my head because I feel like there's some people who could listen and hear your response to my initial question of healing of a community talking about arrogance and suddenly get scared, <laughs> like, whoa, what is wrong? But I was so happy because what you're describing is so important and so often forgotten. You know, in, in a lot of these episodes, community comes up as a part of how God brings healing. But what we often fail to really consider is our natural bend towards pride, our natural desire for control, our natural desire to want to fix things. You communicated some really beautiful things because the way you talked about your role and what Urban Promise has done over the last 25 years is not the norm. Somebody in your position normally after 25 years might say, well, let me tell you all of what we have done, all the things that we have accomplished. But the things that you named that were most important were faithfulness, were obedience. And really, you mentioned that the successes, if you will, that have come were graces <laughs> from God. I feel like this is such an important part of healing because when we don't recognize that all we have to offer, all we have to bring to the table is faithfulness and obedience, then we can come to the table as though we are the ones that are fixing, as though we are the ones who know what needs to be fixed and how to fix it. And it has often happened that that approach has caused harm. 
And so I just want to acknowledge that, that I really appreciate that this is the thing that you emphasize, the faithfulness and the obedience, while also recognizing that God did give a real invitation to you. Because, I mean, I know this, but people who don't know you don't know this. You haven't done ministry all your life. <laughs> like That's not where you started. 25 years ago, what were you doing before you jumped into full-time ministry? It's funny. We were, I was at the high school today, and the brother of one of the students walked in. He just started working at a uh, chemical factory. So I was asking him what the products were, and he didn't know exactly what they were. So I said, well, look, you know, Remy, you've got to ask the people. I want to know what the chemistry is of these products. <laughs> you know, like, oh, that'd be really interesting. So I spent uh, 20 years in the chemical industry, and I'm an organic chemist really by training. And I love it. I love chemistry. Yeah, I had a, a great life experience in that. It's funny. I mean, I think obviously in some ways, nothing I did then is relevant to what I do now. But there was a lot of overlap in hindsight. You're working with people. And that's an interesting point to make. Like, you know, what is ministry? Because I am in a nonprofit that's faith-based and is Christ-centered. It's actually, you know, it enhances being able to do ministry. But if you're working in a factory or working in a, a sales context or whatever business you're in, like, there's no boundaries between ministry. You know, if you're walking with Jesus, everything is ministry. So anyway, I think it has been an interesting journey in two totally different seasons in life. And, you know, you think the other thing is intriguing is like both incredibly abundant and fulfilling. That's an interesting juxtaposition because one would think if there's something transcendent about how to live life, they should be present in all aspects of life. And if it's only like in ministry and in nonprofit, then like, oh, there should be a contrast. And there isn't. You know, I feel that that joy and that privilege and that gift from God in both those contexts. And I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful I've had two radically different life experiences to experience God in and to love people in. And again, it's an act of grace. You know, I did not want to do ministry. That's for sure. <laughs> it was compelling that I had to. So like, oh, I don't know what to do this. But I didn't want to. And you know, like, there's an element of sacrifice in that. When you want to do something, it could be really hard. But if you want to do it, it diminishes the threshold for sacrifice. But when you really don't want to do something, then it becomes authentically a sacrifice. You're like, well, I don't want to do that. I want to do this other thing instead. And I've chosen to do this for some other principle. And that act of sacrifice was meaningful in liberating truth and understanding and freeing you from constraints that confine the boundaries of your vision. So it's been a beautiful time. Yeah. You were talking earlier about if there is an education system that's struggling and you see that there is a desire to figure out how can I step into that space? And this is a natural bend for a lot of people that I interact with, whether it is from a faith-based standpoint or just a caring for people standpoint. They see something broken and they want to step in. And we talked about faithfulness and obedience being a part of shaping what are our motives? How are we understanding our role? And all of that is important, but you know, you stepped into this space that you didn't necessarily want to step into. You were seeing these things before you, and then 25 years elapses. And in those 25 years, you've seen and experienced a lot of things. You've been to a lot of funerals. You've walked with people through a lot of hard situations. And so let's say somebody gets to the point where they're stepping into these spaces for healthy reasons and with a healthy mindset. And then they're there for a span of time. How do you stay at the table when it gets hard? How do you stay at the table, especially if you didn't want to sit at the table in the first place? How do you stay at the table when you're at your 10th funeral? What does that look like to continue to be faithful and walk in obedience when it is hard and heartbreaking? Several things. I mean, first, funerals are this very acute, painful, traumatic experience. And they get attention and they have a far-reaching impact of trauma. But 
dying slowly mm. and in obscurity over a long period of time is not very pleasant to experience either. And I think I worry more about the latter. Uh, the former is, is important and vital and impacts a great deal of the latter. But I'm not sure that funerals are the things that weigh the heaviest on you. The suffering of human beings and the absence of full life and the loss of opportunity is grievous. That weighs on you. And I'm concerned because I think that most of the trends that I look at are negative in terms of the future for the young people that I serve and young people that honestly at any socioeconomic demographic in the country, to some degree globally. It's not a very pretty picture and, and it's not a happy thing to say. But on the other hand, if you want to help a patient recover, if you want somebody to heal, you better make a good diagnosis. Just back to staying power, like there's two or three things. First of all, like, uh, you know, Jesus is the answer to everything. Like, oh, man, let me throw up on that Jesus answer again. But it fundamentally is the hard part is not saying Jesus or thinking Jesus. It's living that out and then confining your choices to the implications of that. So the first thing is, look, my hope comes from Jesus and my power authority comes from Jesus. And because I'm a sinner and got all kinds of flaws and failures and drawbacks, it can be pretty ugly a lot of times. But going back every day and getting cleansed and refreshed and knowing that true, fundamentally, that allows you to say, like, well, you know, I work for Jesus and I'm not going to get worn out. I, like, you know, I know this is a controversial statement, but I'm not a big believer in burnout. I understand despair and fatigue and weariness and uh, hopelessness of those things. But yeah, I just trust Jesus every day. At the same time, I'm accountable. So if we're failing and we failed this year and last year in the same like, the mercy is new every day, but try something new. Evaluate what you're doing. Be practical. Press into what you have control over. I think that's helpful because you're never paralyzed with inactivity. At the same time, you've got to acknowledge what you can't change. You know, in many ways, like the human heart, you're not going to change the human heart. You can walk and live Jesus and you can model that and you can invite people into that. The other thing is absolutely, so Jesus is saying like, what does that mean? And the word of God real diligently looked into and practicing disciplines. And I'm a lousy person on disciplines, uh, you know, barely enough to follow my faith, but it's, it's thank God for his grace in that too. Mm. But those things matter. And so to know what it means to follow Jesus and to exercise his truth and to live according to that, you got to know the word of God and you got to pray and you got to have sensitivity to the spirit of the discipline. So those things are there, but it's essential to do that in community. And the more that you do that in community, the more likely you are to experience that abundantly and to live it powerfully. So without any doubt, I mean, now hundreds, thousands of times that I don't want to go to work today. I don't want to walk into the office today. I don't want to go to this situation today, whatever it is. And that's true for every human being in life. But I'll walk into the office or I'll walk into any of the schools. You see a child, you see a staff member, you see a parent. And immediately there's something about recognizing the presence of God in each of those individuals that is transcendent and compelling to say, I work for God. I live in the eternal. And it is motivating to do that. And the fact that I am loved and encouraged by the people around me. And look, there's lots of frustration and dissonance and conflict and gossip and, and these things. That's human nature and it's organizations. The issue isn't like people are so shocked that Christians behave this way and Christians behave that way. But like, duh, Christians are sinners. That's why they're desperate for Jesus. It doesn't give them an excuse for sinning. But it does say like, of course, they're going to sin. And the issue when you're in this organization is what do you do about that? How do you confront that all honestly? But for sure, it's the body of people that I serve with, not just staff, who are all walking in some context. Some know they're walking with Jesus. Some are interested in walking with Jesus. 
Some are drawn to it, but don't understand or aren't aware of it. And some aren't interested at all, but they're players in the entire journey. And uh, with that body of people that God is president, back to your point about, you know, where, where do you see God today? You should be able to see and experience God 24-7, 365, because that's literally what's happening. And life is so much more beautiful and discerning God's will is so much more useful or not useful, but helpful if you're able to see God that way. And the body really helps you see that. It was interesting today. I couldn't attend the staff meeting today, but I wanted to know what the share time was, which is, you know, where do people see God this week? And it was a very beautiful share time. I listened to some of the things that were taken down as notes. And I commented to one of the staff that, how easily that share time flows, how substantive what is shared is, and to a significant degree, how much it reflects other people and their interactions where God has been a part of moving in their lives. That is a powerful metric of how God is moving amongst us and how the people in staff are engaged in that. So when that is flowing well, it's a great sign of health and everything could be falling apart. But if that's happening in what people are experiencing every day, that is a, a very powerful and encouraging thing to have. So, you know, and that waxes and wanes. And the other thing is like, when it's not going, you're not feeling it anymore, you know? Mm-hmm. That's really like, well, I serve Jesus. And I don't have to be feeling it to be obedient to him today. And again, the community helps hold me accountable to that. Because when I'm not feeling it, and then I want to shut down in a certain way or pretend in a certain way, if you're in a community you cannot pretend people are going to call you out or you're going to feel like a hypocrite because you know they know you and they know better. And again, that shared life experience, and you know, if somebody's been here 15 years and somebody has just been here one, and that's quite a dynamic mix to manage that sense of community and to keep it alive. It's the lifeblood of what we do and central to everything we think about. Yeah. You know, one of the things that my pastor, spiritual father, Don Coleman, who you got to meet my wedding, yeah. when there are groups that are coming in to do a service week in our community, he'll trick them sometimes. He'll say, all right, I want you to raise your hand if you're here to help people. And everyone enthusiastically puts their hands up and he's like, put your hands down. You're not here to help. You're here to serve. And then he goes into the reality that often when we are going with the mindset of helping, We are seeing a problem, we're seeing people with problems, and then we're coming from our positions to reach down and fix. It's like, but with serving, it looks different. When I share a similar message when I'm speaking with groups, I'll bring in John 13, where Jesus strips down and washes the dirty feet of the disciples. He takes this form of a servant. And there's this mindset shift of, it's not that I am better than you and you need me, it's that God's invited me to serve into this space. And so as you were talking, you were mentioning that you serve in a ministry with people who are human and broken and imperfect and sometimes have bad days and sometimes argue and sometimes gossip. And you mentioned how you have these spiritual touch points that when you are seeking God together, it can lead to healthiness. And so it made me think of this question of, you know, we could talk about the healing of a community and we can think of it in terms of it's a body of people that are healthy going to fix those who are not. But what you have probably experienced is that those who are invited to serve, often God does a tremendous amount of healing within them. What are some of the ways that you've seen God bring healing to you or to others who have served within Urban Promise or similar organizations? Well, you know, Paul, if I were honest in this, I'd say the first thing I would drill down on and press into is what is healing? Hmm. It's a loaded term in my opinion. And so it's the theme of your podcast right now. So I don't want to, I don't want to, uh, you do what you got to do, Rob. 
I don't want to cast shade on that theme. So I don't know what you discussed and so forth. And I've reflected a lot about, you know, like trauma is a prominent topic of conversation in virtually every element of society today. Yeah. And trauma-informed care in particular has become a dominant concept in trying to uh, restorative justice and different things and trying to look at how children are experiencing life in school and how that affects them and PTSD and you know, in all kinds of parts of society and everything. When we've had trauma, if you've had a, a traumatic injury, you have to heal from it. And if you've had traumatic emotional injury or mental injury, there are people who have had, I mean, this family that I share that passed in my family, they've been through trauma for over a decade fighting cancer. And it's traumatized that family for over a decade. And I won't go into all the details, but it's been just a tremendous burden on that family. And I've, one thing that I admire is how they've carried that. And you're not joyful and happy, but they've walked with God and they've been honest about the situation. They've been optimistic and then they were realistic as things descended, you know. So what does it mean for that family to heal over time? And again, I just feel like so much of that is in their hearts between them and God and in the community that they're connected to who actually know them. So that's part of the thing. You come in, you're going to heal somebody. You don't know them. Like, that just sounds bogus to me. But the other element of it is the sense that I think it's very prominent as you walk through life. As you get older, I think especially, it's just generally realize like, hey, you know, I think about the things in my childhood that did traumatize me. Well, it's like, it's like well, I'm not going to feel sorry for myself. We all have trauma. It's a part of the human condition. And I don't have to be victimized by my trauma. It's helpful to recognize it. And, you know, if you had sexual abuse, such a serious trauma like that, different traumas at different levels of care and professional engagement and so forth. So that when you use it in this broad way, it's pretty risky, I think, to fall into that sense of positions of power and influence and so forth. So I just am more interested in saying, how do I walk alongside individuals and how do we share our lives together? And then how does that mutual love that develops through the trust that's built, it doesn't happen right away. And that perseverance and that consistency. You know, one of the things that's interesting, Paul, for me is like, I'm not a natural servant. My wife is. A lot of the people on staff are like, I don't want to do anything. I don't want to serve anybody. Really, it's true. Like, uh, I'm a selfish guy on a lot of levels. And it's my default for sure. But I know it's wrong, you know. And so like, oh, you know, I got to go do this thing I don't want to do. It's very typical. But it's the, it's the example of people around me or the sense that, hey, I know this is right. It's a weird thing. And I think like it'd be nice if I grew up and my heart changed and I was more willing to actually go out and serve willingly. And I see people do that. You know, Vanessa Russell, she's like that. She serves willingly, you know. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like, well, better to serve unwillingly than not at all. <laughs> and I'm sure many people who are, you know, whoever would listen to this, everybody's had that experience where you did something you didn't want to do. And then afterwards, like, oh, I'm sure glad I did that. So just back to terms of like these choices that we make. There's a healing that takes place in that. And, you know, where there is historical wounds, for example, which is a prominent issue today, how do you heal that? You know, I don't think I want to venture to say how, but I know how to love people. That I know how to do. Not very well a lot of the times, but that's where grace is important. So, okay, I screwed up today. My wife, you know, nothing gives me more joy than being married to my wife for 40 years. Oh my gosh, it's infinitely abundant. But it hasn't been an easy journey for her. I'm not an easy guy to live with. <laughs> She's a lot easier to live with than I am. That's a fact. But oh my gosh, that 40 years of persevering in that and walking every day and learning each day how to love better, it's just a metaphor for like, that's where full life is found for all of us. And that's the best path I know for people to be healed mutually. So anyway, I think that's something that's relevant. I think about this family again who suffered and I just want to be alongside and love them and not say too much. Yeah. And I think too, you know, like with the people that I serve, for example, 
you know, we had a shootout just outside one of our camps about a month ago. Four or five of the bullets came through the shell of the building. And one of the kids, after the shootout was over, went to go to the bathroom after the thing calmed down. That's how we found out the bullets had come through, because he found all the bullets in the bathroom. And uh, a couple of kids who were there earlier were there when this occurred. Well, they were massively traumatized and they reacted differently to it. It was very interesting that, you know, one's trauma was immediately evident and scary in some ways. The others was, in a way, you think he was coping with it better. But then as you watch it play out through the evening, you know, it wasn't necessarily a healthier approach to how he dealt with the trauma. And then last week, the staff at the Lombard House, where you lived, were in prayer together after their Thursday night community meeting, and a gunfight broke out. They had 15 or 20 shots right outside their house. About 10 or 12 of the shell case markers were right next to one of my staff members' cars. I meant to ask them if it got shot up or not. (laughs) And, you know, the first thing you worry about is their sense of trauma and vulnerability. Just think about what did people think about? I mean, one is the issue of mortality, the lack of security. Where are they drawing their strength from? And where do they look for help from? And so every individual is responding to what they experience as trauma or brokenness or wounds differently from their own life experience. You know, you'd have to understand that before you could remotely do something about healing somebody. Well, how do you learn that? First of all, they got to trust you enough to share any of that. You have to have enough cultural or contextual understanding to grasp some of that. And then I think you have to show that you really care long enough that it's not like, oh, look at me, I'm serving the Lord, but it's actually, you know, I've laid my life down a long time and I'm not doing this because it's cool. I'm doing it because I'm called to it. And all of those things seem like part of this experience as I've watched people consider this question of healing. Yeah. You know, that story brings an interesting thought to my mind. I think you're right. When we're thinking of serving others, we can go into it with a mindset of what we think needs to happen and how it needs to fix and what our role is in that. And we really don't know. If we don't know the historical context, if we don't know the family history, and if we aren't long game thinking in this, if we're not staying at the table to really see the nuances, because like you mentioned, we can look at someone and say, oh, they're handling things well. But if you spend enough time with them, you'll recognize the little nuances to be able to say, oh, I think they're actually wrestling through something, right? So I think that is true. But just as much as we don't understand what it is someone else might need, what's interesting is we actually don't know what we need. And in our minds, our best case scenario for God to bring us to wholeness, to heal the brokenness in our lives, is to put us in good situations. But what you've described is a body of people who have felt invited by God to come into traumatic spaces. I mean, these are people who have said, you know what, I'm going to serve with my time. I'm going to serve without worrying about making a whole lot of money or doing this, that, or the other. I'm going to come and serve. And now we're going to go into this house and we're going to pray. And then a gunfight breaks out. And maybe for some of them, they've never experienced gunshots that close before. And that's, like you mentioned, traumatic. And it can seem counterintuitive that if God wants to bring healing to me, then why is he calling me to a space that seems traumatizing? But I think what you're hitting on is the reality that God actually knows us, knows what full life for us looks like a lot more than we do. And comfortable situations and everything working well isn't necessarily the path there. And God in his abundant wisdom can know that even the worst of situations can actually be the way to abundantly more than we can ask or imagine. You know, I mean, one thing, for example, is lots of people get into this work who are not healthy. 
it's very common that people come and serve out of their neediness and it's toxic or dangerous to them or to the people they serve. So why is that? You know, in some ways, I think it's probably about power dynamics that they're trying to have that sense of authority or power that maybe they're missing in some other context they think is to do it to them. So that's a problem. At the same time, I think a lot of people come into this work who do carry lots of different issues in their lives. So they're not toxic and they're not needy in an unhealthy sense of the word, but they certainly have baggage. And so everybody's got baggage, but some people bring in some pretty heavy emotional baggage into this. And I do think that there's examples of their walking through this journey is uh, meaningful. And I'll tell you, it just seems infinite to me, Paul. So I think it's like, I just think it's every day in every situation, walking with God and looking forward. I can think of a time, an individual that I don't think was particularly healthy, shared quite a bit with the kids, connected with them because there was a fair amount of trauma in her life. And I think the kids appreciated that in her witness. And I think net net, it was probably beneficial to both of them. But I mean, she didn't have staying power. She wasn't there very long. So it was sort of a, you know, like short term, it was good for the short term. But she wasn't healthy enough to make a long-term commitment that would be necessary to sustain the love required for, you know, kind of a long-term process that might bring what you describe as healing. Again, I just think that to sort of have this cookie cutter, like, oh, you know, we came in and then we learned that we were wounded here and God healed us. Like, I think there's an infinite number of examples of that but in all directions. Yeah. You know, just in my life and the, and the things I've encountered, I don't think this is unique to the ministry or doing ministry anywhere. I think you could be working in corporate world, be the same thing. But when you're walking through life and have an accountability to Christ and a community that helps make that real, has teeth to it, and because they know you and they see what you're doing and you feel that or they confront you with that, which is important, not fun, but important. I think that it's a great process of maturing. When you're walking through these different journeys with different people and your sin is revealed in those conflicts or in those places of fear or weakness that you demonstrate, like I am fearful a ton. I'm, I'm fearful like every day. I've been like that all my life. And part of me is like, well, I don't have to keep living in that. You know, like, oh, I'm, I'm fearful every day. Like, well, maybe I should pay some attention to not being fearful every day. Like God could allow me to do that. I've been on my mind lately more. At the same time, there's reasons for that. And, you know, here's another thing, Paul. And none of these is going to fit in your podcast. (laughs) (laughs) We're so concerned about our trauma and our harm and our brokenness and our woundedness. And I think we've become so fragile in life today. So I think it's really important to be honest about those things. It's not like, oh, we just suck it up and be tough. But also to say that it is definitely part of the human experience. And I think that it's more empowering to accept that, hey, a lot of things are tough and difficult. And I don't have to be a victim from that. I'm not defined by that. I may be afflicted with it, but I think that there's more freedom in not being defined by it. You know how we'll have people come in for work teams like you used to lead. We sat around the dinner table to come to my house for dinner. God bless my wife, cooking dinner for 10, 12 people. Mm-hmm. And I remember this was a group from an evangelical university. And as you might know, I'm going to ask them questions that I kind of want to know where they're coming from and what their testimony is just briefly. And literally every person started with a label. I am ADHD. I am obsessive compulsive. They had all these labels. I suffer from depression. The first thing that came out of their mouths was this label that it struck me, allowed them to be safe about like, oh, I feel these kinds of things. And they were resting in that place, in my opinion. It imprisoned them. It didn't free them. So I think it's probably fair to say like, let's just assume all those things were true about them. But much more abundantly true is that they were educated. They were healthy. They were young. They had overcome many things. 
They were in a rich community. I mean, they had this vast array of resources, and yet their primary focus was on what their deficit had been identified as. And that's the most interesting thing. It wasn't like they felt that themselves. I feel inadequate this way. I think that's part of our human experience, all the things we feel insecure about. But when other people say to you, oh, you're, you're obsessive compulsive and you're these things, it just seems unhelpful to me. A diagnosis is really helpful. But when we embrace it as an identity, I think it becomes disabling. And again, there's psychological illness that really gets to levels beyond my comprehensive understanding where it's very appropriate. But I think when it becomes generic, and I feel like it's become very generic in the population at large that we perceive ourselves that way. You know, in a way, it's kind of like I am not healthy and it's part of my identity. So if I became healthy, I'd have to leave that identity. And I prefer the identity I'm in because it's safe and it doesn't compel me to change. And there's an element of saying like, okay, I can rest in this place. So I'm a big advocate of being honest, not saying, oh, it's not that I'm not obsessive compulsive or I'm not depressed. No, I am those things, but I'm much more. And let me pay attention to that, at least in parallel with the other thing. Well, that's a digression, Paul. Well, but I think it's important because it goes back to what you shared earlier, because identity is a huge piece. That's something I've spent a lot of time thinking about, too, that how we identify ourselves can, like you said, limit us. You mentioned at the start, you were a chemist. You weren't wanting to be a ministry worker. You aren't a natural servant. All these things that if you just locked yourself into a specific identity, you would not be where you are now. Part of what you've done throughout this episode is be honest about yourself. But the other piece that I think is so important to name, and this is why it can be so hard for us and why it can be so easy for us to attach ourselves to other identities is because God's inviting us to something beyond us. He's inviting us to spaces where we're going to have to rely on his capacity his wisdom, his knowledge, his love. And that is scary for us because we don't have control over that. <laughs> we don't know what God might invite us to, what God might do. But if our identity is ambassadors of Christ, children of God, well, now it's limitless what could end up happening. But every step is going to have to be a step of faith because we are reliant on something outside of us. We're reliant on understanding outside of us. We're going to have to be honest about who we are and what we bring to the table. And we're going to have to be honest about who God is and what he's inviting us to step into that may be part of the identities he's built into us that we haven't acknowledged and part of his identity in us that <laughs> is going to be in spite of us. One thing I did want to make sure I leave time for is you have been in this space for 25 years. And you probably have a million stories that demonstrate God's love. Is there a story that you would love to share right now that just demonstrates God's love sometime in the last 25 years? <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting, Paul. I mean, there's stories that happened recently and stories that happened many, many years ago. You know, I shared this actually in the banquet. So it was on my mind. She actually, the young woman, Amber, who you heard in the banquet, I met her the very first day we ran camp 25 years ago. So, you know, probably we worked with her and her family maybe eight, 10 years, and then they moved on and she's in Texas now. And the thing that's striking to me is it's a typical story and there are hundreds of them. The journey of living life together that she and I did together and her siblings did, and she and her mom and dad did. I can remember going to see them. They were, they were always sort of quasi homeless and they were in a different place all the time. And they were down at the corner of 11th and church just by the 12th Street Bridge in a corner building. It's abandoned now. They were in hard times. 
And somebody in my church had given me 50 bucks to give to somebody who needed it. And I remember going down and giving it to her dad and feeling kind of uncomfortable about it. And he took it in a heartbeat. <laughs> you know, and it just was interesting. Like, I think, oh, you know, he might be. And like, he was he was trying to feed his family. On Maslow's hierarchy, he was operating at a survival level. And I never forgot that. Like, you know, I was simply an instrument as all it was. And I was like, thank goodness. I, you know, I had a mechanism to get this $50 to him and he took it and it was useful. And we went through a bunch of different things with her over the years. And she was a really good team leader. We made her a junior street leader when we didn't normally do that. And she wasn't even 14 yet. So I think when I talked to Amber for that interview and listened to her testimony, so many things we couldn't share in the interview that, you know, we shared in the banquet, profound stuff, brutal stuff. And I mean, she's an extraordinary person as intellect, strong, just a dynamic woman, but been through a great deal. But I remember vividly, she said, you know, in her worst times, she thought back to her and promise and that those people thought well of me. She, I think that's a portion I did quote in the banquet. She said, they thought well of me there. She said it three times, they thought well of me there. I was struck by that because she was not thinking well of herself. Mm. But the truth is, there were a lot of good reasons to think well of her because she was impressive and wonderful and did all the stupid things young people do, or I do too. But really, a dynamic, impressive young woman that was easy to believe in and easy to hope for. You know, at the same time, you were never deceived that, hey, bad things could happen. And plenty of bad things happened to her. There was something in her experience of love at Urban Promise. She talked about that at length. Well, there was a whole body of people, you know, and she shared some things about her experience with me that I was thankful to hear. But there's a whole body of people that it wasn't Mr. Rob that well of me. They thought well of me. Mm -hmm. That body that loved Jesus. And that was important to her, too, by the way, is she loved how we loved Jesus in an authentic way. That it didn't feel like church to her. It felt like something that was immersed in the way she could feel that love authentically that made her trust what people were saying about who Jesus was. So anyway, we have that experience and I go to speak at a church, maybe a month after the banquet, two weeks after the banquet, just a small group. And there was a woman there and she had her children in the youth group. So it was really, it was the youth group I was speaking to in a random selection of adults. And she came up to me afterwards and she had gotten pregnant in high school. And she was a senior with Amber. Amber went to high school with her, was one of her best friends. And Amber had talked to her and prayed with her and encouraged her not to abort the child. And so she didn't. And the child was there in the youth group. And she came up to me afterwards to share that with me. And, you know, how moved she was, how important Amber was in the decision she made, this life-changing, life-altering decision that she made that now, you know, many years later, she's a woman of God. She's got her family in the church, her child's in the youth group. Doesn't mean everything's perfect, but I think that she's walking with God in a way that's powerful and important. And she has this testimony. And I think that there's no hero in that story. There's a bunch of followers of Jesus who are loving one another each day to the best of their ability, as honestly as they can, and getting up when they fall down. Looking back 25 years, now there's a child who has a hope and a future, and there's a mom who has a testimony, and there's a friend who was used by God and knows that was eternal and transcendent, and there's us being thankful that we could fill a gap that was meaningful to our family, hmm. and that is fruitful for us, where we, we feel privileged to be invited into God's plan for that to happen, and nobody owns it. God owns it. But his grace and his resurrection power is liberated by the obedience and faithfulness of his people. That's just a 
wonderful thing to live every day. Yeah. I really appreciate that story. And I appreciate that sentiment that none of us own these stories. It's God that owns them, but he gives us the privilege of being able to participate in them. And it's just such a valuable, valuable mindset to have. You and I could just keep on talking. Uh, but I will I'm not a short answer person. You're going to do a lot of editing. <laughs> I was prepared for it. I was like, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready for some Rob stories. Two more questions. Very, very simple questions. And the first is super simple. If someone's hearing this and they're curious about Urban Promise and they want to learn more, how can somebody learn more about what's happening in Wilmington? Well, Urban Promise is an international organization and with sites all over the country and all over the world. And they're all independent and different, but they're all brothers and sisters in Christ who work together. We are urbanpromise.org, which is different than the main one that we come up with, Buchanan, which is the biggest site. But it'd be Urban Promise Wilmington, urbanpromise.org. Go to the website. You reach out to somebody. I mean, anybody can reach out to me by email and you know, get a hold of my phone number and call me. Because like, I'm interested in what God is doing and how he is being manifested in Urban Promise Wilmington. I'm not shy to say it is powerful and unique and something that nobody will taste and not walk away transformed. So I want people to be involved. We have all of our agendas and things we need, all that. But I want the kingdom of God to advance forcefully. And I think that can happen by people connecting. You know, at least at Urban Promise Wilmington, I know they're going to experience that and God will work on that. So yeah, go to the website and give us a shout. Yeah. My life's a testament of that. I went in just for a summer, <laughs> ended up not leaving for two years. And I, when I left, I didn't want to leave, but God said to go, but it stayed with me. So I affirm what you have said. And you had an intensive two years, Paul. That was not a, <laughs> that was not a light two years. That's true. That's true. But it was so valuable. <laughs> so valuable. So it was the accelerated course. It was, it was. <laughs> My final question is a really simple one as well. And it's just this. Is there anything else in your heart that before you go, you want to share? No, I think, Paul, I'm grateful that you would have thought to invite me to share with you. And I have no idea who listens to your podcast, but if nobody did, it was just you or two people did, it wouldn't matter. Thankful to serve you and to support you and you're a man of God and you're doing his work and I trust you. And so to be invited to participate with you is a gift to me. Um, I hope I've been useful to you or whoever's out there. And, you know, I'm a sinner. So if I said something stupid, it wouldn't be surprising. But I also think, thank God for Jesus. And I think that you are one of the many people in my life that, you know, all these people, particularly young people that uh, have served just like you did. So I feel grateful to you, Paul, for two things. And another interesting thing, Paul, with you is uh, you served. You did get a wife out of the deal. That wasn't bad. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, you know, you guys support us for a long time in uh, very generous in ways. I just felt like I was intrigued by that because it was unnecessary. Your actions spoke louder than words. And I always admired that. I just really looked up to that. Like, what an admirable attitude of heart that you guys have expressed. And I always admired that. And I think that was so beautiful. So that kind of a witness, Paul, that we each bring to this, you know, we stand on each other's shoulders and get closer to God. appreciated so much of what Rob shared. And as I was thinking of how to close this out, several verses came to mind, but they just didn't seem like the right fit. So I prayed and I asked God to give me a verse. 
and I immediately felt like I should look at the verse of the day on my phone. And at first, I was like, ah, I don't know. But then I read it, and I realized, nope, this is the right one. It's one that most of us know, but often don't internalize the full context. From 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clinging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. I feel like this passage is relevant for so many reasons, but I want to start at the end. So now faith, hope, and love abide, and the greatest of these is love. I can hear those things threaded throughout what Rob shared. It wasn't the things that they accomplished that he was most excited about. It was the faithfulness. It wasn't outcomes that drove them, but hope for a future. And it wasn't obligation that led them to serve. It was love. It was love for their neighbor. It was a love for the friends and families and kids that they came to know and grow in relationship with. Faith, hope, and love drove them. And the greatest of these was love. And without this, we can find that none of it matters. We can do the most amazing things. The passage even says, If I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. We could create the greatest church, the greatest ministry in the world. We can have the most spectacular outcomes. But if it lacks love, authentic love, God-given love, it amounts to nothing. And what we miss here is the inverse of this. I could seem to accomplish very little in human eyes, but if I have love, it can accomplish abundantly more than I could ask or imagine. The reality is, is there have been many ministries and churches that had good intentions but actually caused harm, not because they intended to, but because the heart of this passage was somehow missed. Really good people, really seeking to do good things, can actually cause harm. And so our invitation here is to take Rob's words and do some humble introspection. And the relationships that we engage in, and the ways that we engage ministry, whether formally or informally, will we have enough humble introspection to say, God, am I doing this out of your love? Am I doing this through your love? And if the answer is anything else, 
that I'm doing it to fix problems, that I'm doing it to feel good or to look good, that I'm doing it because I feel like I'm supposed to do it. Those answers aren't going to carry us. They're going to fade away. But if our actions to love our neighbors actually are based out of love, out of the type of love that we see in verses 4 through 7, then God can and will do abundantly more. And this is the beauty of Rob's last story, because it wasn't the story of something great that Rob accomplished. Rob was one small part of that story. And there are parts of that story that he didn't hear about until many years later, that he wasn't directly a part of, but that God invited him to be a piece of the greater picture. A single brushstroke of a beautiful painting that was this young woman's life. And not just her life, but the life of her child and the life of her friend and the life of those that they will impact. Rob knows that he is just a single brushstroke, and he counts it a privilege to simply be on the canvas. It can be so easy to set our eyes on the problems around us, on the things that need to be fixed, on the things that we're accomplishing, on the things that we have done. But what we're invited to is to set our eyes on things above, to set our eyes on God. Because depending on what we're setting our eyes on, that's what we're going to see. But Rob's invitation to me so many years ago, and my invitation to you every time you listen to this podcast, is that you get a chance to see God. So think about where your eyes are set. Think about how faith, hope, and love can be poured into what you're doing. And then ask yourself, where did you see God? Have you ever wanted to read Revelation but haven't known where to start? Or have you been afraid to read Revelation because of all the ways you've seen it misused? Or maybe you haven't even wanted to touch Revelation, but feel like maybe you should since it's part of the Bible? Well, if you're in any of these positions or any other ones, I've got a resource for you. It's called A Journey Through Revelation for the Person Who Doesn't Want to Read Revelation. And here's the thing. The hope for this resource is that it makes the exploration of who God is and what Revelation can mean for you accessible, whatever you believe. And this will not be your normal revelation study. It's not going to dive into the historic representations of the imagery or expertly decipher the prophecies. The goal of this is not to tell you what revelation means. It's to explore what it can mean for you. Now, this thing is available for you right now in a few forms. One, you could go to www.wheredidyouseegod.com revelation, and you can find a PDF for free, which you can read on your phone, on your device, or print out. But if you like something that's a little nicer looking, it is also available through Amazon on Kindle and in paperback form. And I prefer paperback, whether you print it or you get the one on Amazon, because this gives you a place to write some things out because you're going to want a place to write things out. Because I really do believe that God wants to speak to you through Revelation, whatever you feel about Revelation, whatever your experience and whatever you think about God. So if you're interested, get it for free. Get it for a very, very, very low price. This is not about making money, but about us together exploring how we can see God in the midst of such a difficult and controversial book. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Where Did You See God podcast. And I would love for your stories to be a part of it as well. So there are a number of ways that you can do that. You can check out our Facebook page at Where Did You See God podcast. You can go to anchor.fm slash where did you see God, or you can leave a brief voice message at 804-372-3836. I would love to hear your stories. And if the stories you've heard have encouraged you, uh, think of someone else who could be encouraged as well and share it with them. 
The music you've been listening to is You'll Walk, You'll Run by Urban Doxology. They are a solid group and you will love listening to the rest of the music. So check them out. And as always, as you go through your day, ask yourself, where did you see God? <laughs>